All right, so uh, we'll read from the Bible now, and we're in the book of Esther, chapter 5 and verse 9, if you'd like to follow along. Haman went out that day, happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she, ha she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. That night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the chronicles of the record of his reign to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, 
is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Hello, everybody. My name's Ethan, uh, and I'm one of the pastors here at Soil Bible Church. It's fantastic to see you this evening. Hello to everybody online. Uh, I'm going to start in prayer, uh, and then we're going to jump straight into the passage, because uh, I think it's fantastic. It's really fun. So we'll get there in a sec. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, help me as I preach your word tonight. May you fill those in this room and those online with the joy that your word can bring. May we together marvel at the work of your hidden hand as you speak through your spirit and through your word today. Amen. We are in the middle of the book of Esther, smack bang in the middle. So if, you're, uh, if this is your first time tonight or you've missed a few weeks, this might be a kind of a weird time to uh, have dropped in uh, on the book. However, uh, I'm going to alleviate that worry by starting from the start. I'm going to do a quick little overview of previously on Esther. Um, we met our characters about 2,400 years ago uh, in the 4th century BC. Uh, the Jews, the Jewish people, had been freed from uh, their uh, time in Babylon uh, by the Persians as the Persians came through and wiped out Babylon. Um, and they were sent home, but not all of them went home. And two of the Jews that did not go home were Esther and her cousin Mordecai, uh, the main characters of our story. Now, the king at that time, his name was Xerxes, uh, and he loved a good party, um, perhaps a bit too much. Uh, the book opens with a party that he has thrown that goes for 187 days. And the whole point of this party is just to show off how great he is. Um, <laughs> Towards the end of that, he's had a little bit too much drink. And when I say a little bit, I mean way too much. Um, and he calls his wife in to show off to the boys, pretty much. That's, that's kind of the idea. And she, I think, rightly so, refuses. And she's like, I'm not going to do that. And he, in a drunken rage, kicks her out and says, we're not going to talk to you anymore. No more Queen Vashti. Done. King Xerxes suddenly is, with it, is without a queen. And so he throws a sort of morbid, gross... Persian god king wants a wife kind of thing. Um, and um, in all seriousness, if you want full details on that one, Paul, a couple of weeks ago, did a really good sermon uh, on that competition um, and how that it was not like flicking on Channel 9 and watching The Bachelor. Um, if you want to hear that sermon in a little bit more detail, uh, check that on YouTube or on our or any podcast app, just look up Soul Revival Church, because um, that's, that's a really, really good one um, and very helpful. Uh, well, Mordecai encourages his cousin to join the, the beauty pageant and, um, and see how she goes. And she goes willingly and wins, ending up becoming queen. So we have this woman who is uh, a Jew, but she hasn't told anyone that she's a Jew, and she's the queen of the Persian Empire, um, which is very impressive. Enter character number three. His name is Haman, uh, and the king has given this guy uh, a promotion. Uh, he is the coolest, most impressive, most important noble. That's kind of his rank. Um, and he says that everyone must bow before me. We quickly learn that Haman is not the coolest noble because he notices Mordecai, 
our, our guy, one of the guys I introduced before. He can't forget his name because it's just a really cool name. Um, and Mordecai, he refuses to bow. And Haman just is furious, absolutely furious at this. And he does what any uh, coolest, most impressive, most important noble would do in this situation. And he vows to kill Mordecai and all of his people, uh, which is, I think, uh, apparently the next logical stage. Um, he then convinces his good mate, the king, uh, and sets in motion the annihilation of the Jews in the Persian Empire. Um, so that's, he, he rolls a dice to determine when it's going to happen, and it's going to happen in a few months. Mordecai then, uh, as we heard about last week, convinces Esther to use her station as queen to go to the king and convince him not to do it. Esther has to summon the courage and go to the king, fearing death, saying quite famous lines of, if I perish, I perish, because uh, if you couldn't even, as the queen, go and see the, qu go and see the king unannounced um, without fear of death. Um, but when she walks in, he says to her, um, I will listen to you, and you know what? You can have anything you want. Do you want half of my kingdom? And in response, she says, let's have a banquet. And the king's like, yes, I love banquets. <laughs> If we, if we take away anything from today, it's that Haman loves banquets. Um, and then they go to this banquet. Oh, sorry. Yeah, and then, he, and then Esther says, um, yeah, we're going to have this banquet and you've got to invite Haman. And the king's like, yeah, let's do this. Haman goes to this banquet. And while they're at that banquet, the king has a bit too much to drink again and says to his queen who has thrown this banquet, what do you want? Anything. Half my kingdom. And she again says... Another banquet. But this time, just like a VIP kind of situation, just you, me, and Haman. Uh, and that's kind of where we got up to um, before this Bible reading. Um, Haman is stoked with his VIP pass. Um, and last week, uh, Stu said that we're going to find out what happens at that banquet, uh, the one with just the three of them that Esther had planned for. Um, and he said that we'd have to wait till this week. Um, but if, you're, if you were listening to the Bible reading or reading along, you would have noticed that that's not what's happened. This seems to be this weird filler episode between the climaxes. And it's like you know, those bits in a TV show where it feels like they've just chucked it in to pad time. Um, and it's, it kind of feels like that section. I want to say now that although it may seem like that, it's nothing of the sort. This chapter is actually the pivotal section of the whole book. Everything changes in this chapter. So I'm going to continue the story. and I'm just going to almost abridged talk through that Bible reading that we just had. Um, so let me continue. Haman comes home from the banquet and he's all like, honey, I'm home. Um, he's like, babe, that banquet was so fun. But that Mordecai guy, get this, he wasn't kneeling at the gate again. Sick of him. Um... I know, we, I know we're going to kill the Jews officially in a few months, but I reckon I, reckon I could just kill him now, eh? Like, I think that'd be, that'd be the way to go. Um, and you know what he does? He calls all his mates and he calls all his family. He goes, guys, look at me. Like, I have money and I have sons and I have... Uh, and the king said I'm the coolest, most impressive, most important noble. Um, and also, get this, the queen herself invited me to a personal VIP banquet. And then he sighs, 
And from verse 13 on the screen, he says, but all of this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that that Jew Mordecai, see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. He's still alive. And then his wife has an idea. Why not build a big pole? (laughs) Reaching to the height of 50 cubits to skewer Mordecai. I reckon you should build the pole and then go to the the palace in the morning and ask if we can just kill him early. Um, And now, okay, admittedly that does actually sound horrific, but it also sounds a little bit hilarious. Excuse me for laughing, but if everyone, can everyone just look up at the roof for a second? And Dave, could you like direct the camera at the roof so they can see the roof too? How high do we reckon this roof is? Just in meters. 10 meters. Thank you, brother. Um, now, <laughs> 50 cubits is, is 23 meters. <laughs> it's, it's ludicrous. A, 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 um, <laughs> a rugby league goal, a rugby league goal post, is 16 meters high. It's, it's, it's wild. And it, it's, it, is, it is a little bit silly. And I think we're allowed to laugh at this. Although, although it is a plot to kill our main character, it's, it's done in a way that's a little bit odd. Um, and so back to the story. Haman, he was thinking about how awesome killing Mordecai was going to be. Uh, the 23 metre high death. It was going to be great. And you could just picture him whistling uh, on his way to the king. This is going to be excellent. And then the scene cuts. And we get to the next chapter and we see Xerxes. He's lying in bed and he's struggling to sleep. He does what any rational man does. He calls in an attendant and says, read me my biography. (laughs) Tell me about myself and how amazing I am. (laughs) I was, um, yeah, so flick through the chronicles and tell me the amazing things I've done. and so he says that to his, to his mate, uh, to the attendant, sorry. Uh, and the guy, he's reading it. And if you look at the screen, 6 verse 2, it was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Now, we found uh, out about Mordecai saving the king's life uh, earlier in this book, in chapter 2. I didn't, I didn't address that in my skim over because we were going to get there. Um, but he just he saw some dudes chatting and was like, I better tell Esther and then Esther will tell the queen. But they accredited it to Mordecai and put it in the, um, the Chronicles. Uh, and that happened about five years ago uh, at this point. And so Xerxes had completely forgotten about it and he asked, the dude, uh, asked his attendant, and he's like, do we do anything for this guy? And the attendant's like, nah. And so, and so the king said, all right, who is in the court? Is anybody here that can action this? And um, now Hanan, as we see on, on the screen in verse 4, now Haman had just entered the, entered the outer court uh, of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole. <laughs> um, and his attendant answered, um, Haman is standing in the court uh, and bring him in, the king ordered. And he turns to Haman and says, what should be done for the man the king delights to honour? And, and Haman, I think, I don't know, he's pretty, looking at his character reference thus far, it doesn't surprise us that he goes, you know what, I think the king's talking about me. 
And so he says, his heart's desire, on the screen, he says, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden. I want king merch. One with the royal crest placed on its head, then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights in honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man that the king delights to honor. And the king says, go at once. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai. You could just see it, can't you? Just that, just the, the shoulders droop, but the like, I'm still in front of the king, so I can't like, I can't yell like I want to yell, but the, the, just the expression instantly changes as the king says, do not neglect anything you have recommended. Haman has to do his heart's desire for Mordecai, which is actually... Again, really hilarious in a, in, a, in a dark humor, laughing at the bad guy kind of way. We have this almost cartoonish picture of Haman gr- like really grumpily leading this horse saying, look who the king honors, it's, it's, it's this guy. And like, they would have they had to do a lap or so, just actually pulling him through the city. Um, <laughs> and that's the story. That's what we're up to. Uh, and it is, it is funny, and it is wild. Like, it's a, I love this story so much, and that's kind of why I wanted to, one of the reasons I wanted to share it in that way and start the, uh, a big portion of uh, the servant in this way. Um, but the other part was to kind of give a, give a vibe and, and go all the way back to the start and get a collection uh, and a vibe of the kinds of people that we're working with here, particularly in... Xerxes and Haman. Um, uh, there's still a banquet to come. Uh, in, uh, Dad foreshadowed that. Uh, that's going to be next week uh, to hear about whether the Jews will be saved or not. Um, but today, yeah, I wanted to look at the characters of Haman and Xerxes, uh, which this section focuses on. Um, and I'm going to talk about one point from now on, and that's their pride. This book although it is deathly serious, one seems to mock the pride of those who think they are better than God. So before we go on, I found a really helpful description of pride uh, written by a guy called James Stalker in 1901. Uh, And in his book, uh, he notes uh, a whole bunch of stuff about pride. Uh, And I'm going to start by reading this. He actually claims that it is impossible to display any constancy or zeal in religion without being accused of pride. This is because, uh, uh, this is because people think uh, that we as Christians consider ourselves to be better than others. That's kind of the, there's this vibe that goes around this, 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 this uh, a social imaginary of thought uh, where people think uh, that we all go around going, oh, look how good we are. Indeed, there are those, I'll read, continue on, uh, who call everyone who will not join with them in riot and excess a Pharisee and a hypocrite. Without more ado, but God himself has said, come out from among them and be ye separate. So we are to be separate from the world as Christians. And that is the pride we as Christians are often uh, accused of. Uh, Now, 
Stalker goes on to say, he's, he's about to say now, that that separation is not proper pride. I wanted to make that clear real quick before we got into this. Uh, that, that pride that is often uh, accused of Christians, that separation from the world, is not proper pride. Instead, Stalker says, there is such a thing uh, as, if it, uh, it should be on the screen, there is such a thing as proper pride. And when an accusation of pride is brought, the accuser requires to be judged as well as the accused. In pride, there is always an element of falsehood. It is a claim to merits that are not possessed, or, if we possess them at all, we deceive ourselves and attempt to deceive others as to the degree in which we possess them. We deny and ignore the claims of others in order that our own may be preeminent. We hate those who estimate us exactly for what we are worth. Now, it's a bit wordy, and it's a bit 1901-y, um, um, uh, but, it's, but what we're going to do is, I actually might leave that on the screen, Tobias, um, and use that as, as we look at Haman's pride, for starters, uh, as an example of proper pride, of actual pride. So Haman is so angry that one person won't bow to him that he seeks to kill a whole race of people. In chapter 5, 10 to 12, he gathers his family and friends and he boasts about all the good things he has. But he saw Mordecai that day and that straight up ruined his day. Now, hopefully this is a fun fact for everyone. I, I, I botched the slide order, Tobias, so if you can find the, the next bit, uh, there's two Hebrew words. Now, um, in Hebrew, the concept of pride is most often expressed metaphorically. Uh, with words that literally say height. Uh, the, mo the word most frequently used uh, in this way is the noun that is on that side, on that side of the screen. Um, uh, the one, admittedly, the one in, in this one, it, to describe the pole, is the one on the other side. Um, but the... Uh, but the metaphor still seems to be there as we see his pride embodied uh, by the skewer he seeks to kill Mordecai with. Why else would it be so tall? I am so important that I must kill Mordecai in a way that glorifies me, that makes me look good, that everyone will be able to see my property and my enemy. Now, if we go back to that quote, uh, probably the one with bold on it, uh, Tobias, if you can find it, that's all good if you can't. Um, we can see kind of a really cool little alignment as, as Haman denies and ignores the claims of Mordecai in order that his own claims may be preeminent, more important, and he hates Mordecai for, for, for estimating him exactly what he is worth. Mordecai saw this man talking about how good he is, and Mordecai said, you're not worth bowing to. And the anger at that, that is Haman's pride. Meanwhile, the self-professed God-King Xerxes I could probably just leave it at that and don't have to explain it anymore. But um, the self-professed God, King Xerxes, can't sleep, so he reads a book about himself. 
Now I said this, I was chatting to, I was chatting to my wife Katie uh, about this and she found a really funny little parallel. Uh, we we're talking about, we we're laughing about the fact that we can really find ourselves, I don't know if you guys find this, but it's really easy to find yourself scrolling through Instagram, um, but not through other people's stuff, through your own page, being like, oh, look at the things I've posted, look at the things I've done. Um, just making sure you've, you've got it right. This is what Xerxes is doing here instead of sleeping. He's scrolling through his own Twitter wall going, oh, look how funny I was. Or he's going through his Instagram highlights and going, oh, that was great. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so clever. And he's not just reminiscing, which, which that is a thing we do sometimes. We scroll through that stuff to reminisce. Um, but he's actually going, no, I'm amazing. What great things I've done. I've thrown 187-day banquets this man kicked his wife out for not showing herself up for his friends. He has held a, a contest to get the most beautiful girl in the Persian Empire to be his queen, all to show off his glory. This is a man who wants to be a god so badly that he needs to make everyone know how splendid he is. And in his time of peace, and reflection in his downtime. He reads a book, or has a book read to him, as he lies there and hears about his own excellence. Now, as we look at all those examples, we see the essence of pride, and that is selfishness. Our pride and selfishness might not lead us to kill. It might not lead us to throw 187-day banquets in our own honour. But pride doesn't just affect cool, important, impressive nobles and kings. The first sin was in a garden. Adam and Eve heard whispered to them by the tempter, the snake. He said, you shall be gods. And they took the, the, the fruit to make themselves higher than God. This has been happening since the start, it's happening today in our conversations, in our purchases, in our social media presence. Our pride can come from our intellect, our job, our bank account, our marks, our talents. Uh, Stalker says that even spiritual gifts may be a cause of pride. Nay, even humility itself may give occasion to it. It may come out in our speech as we boast about nothing but ourselves or we lie and labour to convince others of our superiority. It may come out in our priorities as God takes second fiddle to whatever we have planned. As I touched on earlier, pride can look like judgment of others. However, pride can also look like fearing the judgment of others, as we care more about what people think of us than we care about what God thinks of us. It is so pervasive. And I've barely touched the surface. This book, Esther, it is very excellent and very fun and really interesting. Um, but it also shows us what God thinks about pride. 
In this passage we just had read, uh, we see this, uh, this ironic reversal bait-and-switch moment on Haman in this, uh, as, as he leads his enemy Mordecai through the streets on the king's horse, in the king's robe. And that's just the first moment of God's judgment on Haman. There is more to come. Uh, as we can see on the screen, uh, it is foreshadowed by Haman's wife, Naresh, in Esther 6.13. She says, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. God does not care for pride. Next week, we will find out what happens to, to Haman. Um, or you can just read ahead. But, um, but Christians here today know that God doesn't care for pride. But based on our knowledge of the rest of the Bible, particularly the life of Jesus, that's understandable, right? Think about it. We follow Jesus as Christians, believing that he is God. But he came down as a human. Think about the Christmas story. It's just around the corner. A baby, a fragile kid, in a disgusting manger. From day one, Jesus lowered himself. And who are we to glorify ourselves over God? After seeing him dine with outcasts and sinners, how can we possibly think we're too holy to hang out with people different to us? After knowing that he washed the feet of those who followed him, how can we possibly think we are more important than those around us? After he died on a cross in a dreadful, humiliating way for our sin and our pride, why can't we put our lives on the line for him, who by grace has already saved us, not just in life or death, but we, we, when we don't put aside our lives in the service of others, as Paul talks about uh, in Romans 12, we want to end up like this. It says in, uh, sorry, something else. I have a slide from John Wesley. He once said this. Oh, beware. Do not seek to be something. Let me be nothing. And Christ be all in all. I love that quote. The God of the universe lowers himself to our level. Lower than us. And so we go, if Christ does it, so must we. And if Christ is so low, then we must surely be lower than the king of the universe. It says in Romans 12, Verse 1 and 2, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The pattern of this world is one that is, fill, is filled with pride and other sins. But I'm just talking about pride. 
today. And it's actually really hard to not conform to that. Because as we have learned from this part of Esther, it is really easy to identify pride, to see that in these these big characters. And actually, as we probably know from our own lives, it's really easy to identify pride in others. But it's not as easy to identify pride in ourselves. And so, as I give this sermon, I am not giving this sermon saying, guys, look at one another and figure out which, which of you are more prideful than others. And I'm not looking at any of you and saying, I am less or more prideful than you. Because I notice stuff in myself all the time about my personal pride. And it, but it is very difficult to spot in yourself, unless you do what I'm about to read out. Um, there's a question raised by... Uh, the, the guy I was, who I've been quoting, James Stalker, he asks, what then is the remedy for our pride? And he has a great response. But before we get to his response, the remedy, his remedy is excellent and it's legit and we'll get there. But the remedy is remembering Jesus's death and resurrection and knowing that even though we are prideful, Even though those around us are prideful, God has taken our sin and thrown it as far away as the east is from the west and remembers it no more. And unlike these two characters in Esther, we are saved. We are not in judgment for our pride, no matter how much God dislikes it. But still, as Christians... We strive to remedy our pride. And so, I'm going to close with this quote. I've been quoting this guy all day, so I thought I might close with it. James Stalker says, Anything that makes us think more of God or of our neighbour is a remedy. Because as I have said, the essence of pride is selfishness. We are proud because we are thinking of ourselves alone and have forgotten the claims of God and the claims of those around us. We have forgotten that God has given us all our gifts, whether of nature, fortune, or grace. These belong to him. We are only looking after them. And there is a day coming when we shall have to give an account of how we've looked after them. And if we've received our gifts that we may be stewards of God, we receive them knowing that we must love and look after others. It is only a cheap greatness which lords it over others. He uses the word pinchback, but I googled it and it's cheap. A cheap greatness which lords it over others. The golden greatness consists in service. Let's live lives here at Soul Revival Church and wherever you end up this week. Serving one another. Remembering we are doing so because of God. And with the help of his spirit. And with the knowledge of Jesus' sacrifice that has freed us from sin and death.
It is only a cheap greatness which lords it over others. The golden greatness consists of service. One way.